Hey guys, this is Robert Malazzo from Murmur. Before you listen to today's episode, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Audible. Audible is this incredible digital platform where you can listen to all of your favorite books and radio shows, TV programs, magazines. Basically, if you can read it and you can see it, you can listen to it through Audible. So here's an idea. Go to audibletrial.com backslash Murmur, and they will give you a free month's trial because you listen to Murmur. Again, audibletrial.com backslash murmur free month on them but believe me you are going to want to keep subscribing it's a great platform i listen to it in the car all the time when i go on road trips with the dog he likes it too don't ask me how i know i just know audible listen to it you'll love it and now quiet on the set quiet on the set okay everybody quiet on the set scene one take 10 marker studio of WHUP LP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo and over the next hour together we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, your kid could not paint that. Comic artist, artist, Frank Whiteley is with us. Welcome. Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo. Happy to be with you every week live via whup.org every Friday. But we are evergreen via iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Uh, Yeah. What a nice day outside today. I think I could tell there's a window and I see a tree. And the tree is happy. (laughs) Bob Ross is not our guest today. Uh, Frank Quitely is here. So we we don't have one artist. We have another artist. We also have a website, murmurradio.com. We also have social handles. At MSFMurmur is Twitter, Instagram. And we have a Facebook page, Facebook backslash murmur radio we have an email address which is murmurradio at gmail.com so be in touch with us often tweeted us at msf murmur download us that's the key i'm told it's not enough to subscribe you must download you know what it's like it's like if you subscribed to a magazine but you never actually read it the key i've been told is to read uh, our show. No, the key is to download the show. So subscribe, download to Murmur every week. Happy to be with you. Today's guest is Frank Quitely. Frank, uh, from a, a distance, as I had not known him until this occasion, was simply one of my favorite artists. And I want to. I I don't want to qualify that word artists for you because it may not need to be qualified. And now that, that's part and parcel to the talk today with Frank. I was in London. Not too long ago, and Frank and I sat, and he's, I usually save the editorializing about the guest for another day, but he's such a good guy, and it was just a great pleasure to meet him, meet some of his family members, and bombard them with questions about Scotland. I'm sure they appreciated that. (laughs) At any rate, uh, Frank is with us, 
and we're going to talk about two things. It's sort of a bit bit of a bait and switch. I asked him as a pretext to the talk to to answer the question, are comic books art? And the pretext and the bait and switch is I wanted to know how he defines artist, that word. And to it, is he an artist? So th- those are the embedded questions. It's a, it's a bait and switch. It, it, it turned out to be a really fascinating talk I found, and I still find. You listen, you decide. I was uh, last night. I went to see Hidden Fortress. Hidden Fortress. This you know, today's talk with Frank is littered with coincidences. You'll hear topic, topical coincidences. Another one is actually last night. I went to see Hidden Fortress again. I hadn't seen it in, in many years and misremembered it. Of course, it's even more brilliant than when I first saw it. This is Akira Kurosawa, 1958. And uh, when I think of Kurosawa, well, the film, and we talk about Kurosawa, Frank and I, uh, but I think of Kurosawa in in the in the in the phraseology of art, being an artist, living an artist. His life had many peaks and valleys. Uh, a suicide attempt late in his career, I believe, around 1971, which was. Uh, his excruciating, he, he was living with this sort of excruciating pain of gallbladder problems and A, I mean, how can we locate and how can we motivate, how can we explain a motivation for an attempted suicide? I, so I won't, but I will just say this. Part of it is, the and in, his, in his biography, in his autobiography, it's a great book called Something Like an Autobiography, Part One. He never completed more than Part One. He talks very candidly about this and being sick, physically sick, and also his career had hit a wall. He couldn't get a film produced. And that kind of has always been embedded in my mind when I think of Kurosawa and I think of him and I think he is an artist. It's not simply the work of art. It, or it, it can be. An artist can be known simply as someone who creates art. But I love the people I've sat and, and t- spoken with over my X number of years doing this now, um, 200 sit-downs now, you know an artist when you're in their presence. You know that. And and I'm going to ask Frank to define it in the talk, and we'll see if he ice skates around it successfully or not, or how thin that ice is. Be that as it may, it's more than the result. It's that thing. I find when I know when I'm with an artist I, I, I can literally describe to you, not describe, but I, I can walk away feeling uh, I've been with an artist. There's, and I'll take the religiosity out of what I'm about to say, but there's an expression or there's a saying, how do you know the difference between an angel and a devil? And an artist is both angel and devil, but I'll spare you that. How do you know if, if you've been in the presence of an angel or a devil? Well, when the when a devil leaves, they've taken something from you. When an angel leaves, they've left you something. So an artist, you know, being both angel and devil, it's that. You know that. You have to be with that person. So there's the artwork, but is that person an artist? And is he or she who generates art an artist? The answer is yes. But I find the most ravishing experiences in my work now are sitting with artists. Okay, spoiler alert, I think Frank Quitely is an artist. Spoiler, spoiler alert, I actually think, as of now, everyone who's come on Murmur and done my series in the Modern School film is an artist. Now, how do they feel? I've been called an artist in a previous life and in this lifetime. We actually had Henry Rollins on an episode and I asked him if people who do radio and podcasting are artists. He said, yeah, it's an art form. So excluding that, this is a really beautifully vicious question, but I wanted to hide it from him by asking him, by asking Frank Quitely in London, are comic books art? That, again, is its own parlor trick. That's its own elephant in its own room. But hearing the discussion, playing it back many times this week and thinking about my motivation at the time and my consistent motivation, it is 
it is to force artists to define that, and not everyone does. But going back to Kurosawa, he's an artist. He's created art, and he's created masterpieces. You know, words like artist, well, words like masterpiece and genius, those are the most overused words now. Artist, I don't think I can ever get tired of, of calling out that word and determining for myself if that person is an artist. You you can hear for yourself, and let's see what Frank says. Today on Murmur, Frank Quitely, now this. God works in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Yes, I was with Brother Harper right up to the end. Now that I'm no longer employed by the penitentiary, it is my joy to bring this small comfort to his loved ones. It's a mighty good man would go out of his way to bring a word of cheer to a grieving widow. So you ain't with the state no more? No, brother, I resigned only yesterday. The heart-rending spectacle of them poor men was just too much for me. Ah, little lad, you're staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil? H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see, these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one against the other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand. Left hand hates a fighting, and it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won. And old left hand hate is down for the count. I never heard it better told. I wish every soul in this community could get the benefit. Oh, you just got to stay for our picnic Sunday. No, I must wend my way down river on the Lord's business. You ain't leaving in no hurry if we can help it. John, mind your manners. Take that look off your face. Act nice. Well, you don't mean no impudence, do you, boy? Do you, boy? How many's the time poor brother Ben told me about these youngins? What'd he tell you? Well, he told me what fine little lambs you and your sister both was. Is that all? Why, no, boy. He told me lots and lots of things. Nice things, boy. Thank you. <laughs> My, that fudge smells yummy. It's for the picnic. Safe and, and you don't get a smidgen of my fudge unless you stay for the picnic. Leaning. Leaning. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness. What a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning on Jesus. Leaning on Jesus. Safe and secure from all. Go get the children out of bed and bring them down here. Women are such journey fools. It's a hard world for little things. Figured I was gone, huh? Run. Hide in the staircase. Run quick. Ruby, get. What do you want? I want them kids. 
What do you want them for? That's none of your business, madam. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here. Then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting you. Miss Boone? Rachel Cooper. Get your state troopers out to my place. I got something trapped in my barn. Oh, the streets of Rome are filled with rubble. Ancient footprints are everywhere. You can almost think that you're seeing double. Today's guest, a pretty simple question, you know, are comic books art? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So rather than tell you what he told me, which wasn't much, because he's always really busy and wanted and doing things, today we're going to ask this question, which we get all the time, are comic books art? Yes, fans love them. They're, they've given birth to a new revolution in cinema, for better or for worse. But core material, is it considered art? Well, today we have someone who is an artist. The BBC affirmed this. He was part of a series in 2014 that asked, what do artists do, essentially, in their, their day? Uh, so whether he thinks he's an artist, as long as the BBC thinks it, then it's true. Another part of the proof that he is an artist, there's a solo exhibition of his work at the Kelvin Grove in Scotland. The gallery is featuring his work, but also the original Batman, Bob Kane, Neil Adams. Do you see what I'm saying? This Today's guest is mentioned in the same sentences of other artistic giants. So whatever he says is wrong, I think he's an artist. Please welcome to Murmur Radio Simulcast, a true artist, Mr. Frank Quitely. Good to see you, good to meet you. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. How often do you get to London? Uh, not often, yeah. once every couple of years. Does London inspire you? Yeah, it's an amazing city. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tomorrow, a. Uh, I'm down with my two sons, and tomorrow we're going to see the, the Hockney exhibition before it, before it shuts on, yeah. on Monday. What's so. funny, I'm, uh, and I ap apologetically state, I'm a New Yorker, and when I come to London, it really is the closest to New York, for better or for worse, mm -hmm. of the international cities. Yeah. And people talk about the energy of New York. Do you respond to that when you travel, you know, with your work or otherwise? Do, oh, yeah. It, and I guess, can, where does it sit in terms of Glasgow? You know, you're, you're a native of Scotland, obviously. Are you still inspired by your home? Maybe oh, that's yeah. the question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I only travel a couple of times a year. And um, when I go somewhere else, and New York's a particular favourite of mine. Yeah. Um, and it, it's funny because I actually think the... From my experience, the, the the atmosphere in New York is actually very different from the atmosphere in London. Yeah. With London, they, they've both got the scale, they've both got the kind of overwhelming scale. Yeah. But um, and they've both got many of the same kind of attractions. But 
London feels closer to home in terms of I've been here, more, or I, I was here as a child, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, whereas New York, New York's got a glamour. Yeah. For, for people from the UK, New York's got a glamour yeah, yeah. that I think London doesn't have because of, because of film, principally, and TV, yeah. um, and comics for me as well. But, um, but the difference for me is that in New York, it's actually, it's actually closer to Glasgow in terms of whether, irrespective of what type of area, if yeah. it's a kind of like a she-she kind of West End type place, or if it's like a, if it's a really rough, like kind of um, a kind of poorer area, like people talk to you. Yeah, it's not always, it's not always the kind of talk you want, but people actually, <laughs> people do actually engage with you each other. For, yeah. Whereas in London, I think people tend much more to to just go about their business without actually interacting. You went to Glasgow School of Art. Yeah. When did you decide, I want to go to art school? When I was in my early teens. Um, drawing was the thing that I did most as a child. Um, when I got to what we call high school, when yeah. art was my favorite subject, yeah. and I found out after a short while there was a place called Glasgow School of Art, yeah. where you, it was like being in the art class all day, every day, yeah. rather than just twice a week or whatever. And, um, and I kind of set my sights in that. And um, the last year of high school, I spent most of the whole year putting a, a folio together. And I got accepted for Glasgow School of Art. And the first year at Glasgow School of Art back then was a foundation course and you did a bit of everything. Uh, and then you chose a department, and I chose to go into the drawing and painting department. I was mostly interested in doing figurative work, so I like to work with the, the human figure. And I chose that because, on the one hand, I thought it would be amazing just to spend my life doing whatever type of work I wanted. Yeah, drawings, paintings, prints, sculpture. But, on the other hand, I was always really drawn to comics, to book illustration, to graphic design, yeah. to murals, and I kind of, even after I'd left art school, um, I still had this feeling that I wanted to do a bit of everything, mm. and and I did do a bit of everything for a for a few years. I I did murals in restaurants and schools. I did and I did posters, posters yeah. for nightclubs. I yeah. did t-shirt uh, designs. I did. Um, shop window displays, I did commissioned portraits. Was it genuine curiosity or was it I'm searching for something that I connect to or was it sort of trying to take a little bit of every influence you could? I think partly I was actually trying to get as much experience as possible. Yeah. Um, and I liked the variety, but in retrospect, I don't want to kind of post-rationalize it, but I think maybe I was actually still looking yeah. for whatever niche I was going to find. And while I was freelancing, doing all these different types of things, I heard um, somebody told me that there was a, a printers, just a, you know, a, a printers that printed wedding stationery and posters for nightclubs and things like that. And um, they were looking for an artist. Yeah. And I went down with Did my, you know any? <laughs> I went down with my portfolio and um, it turned out they were, they were putting their own comic together and yeah. they were just looking for artists who could write their own story and hand in fully finished stories and it was a, a kind of underground adult humour comic and I thought I'll give it a go, I haven't drawn a comic strip since I was like I, a much younger child and um, Almost, I don't, I don't know if it was the very first strip that I did, but very, very quickly, something had clicked, and I felt yeah. that I'd found my, the, the thing I didn't know I was looking for. I'd found this thing where I was in control of everything, yeah. and at that point, I was writing, drawing, lettering, using the zip tone, everything. So, um, and there was no editorial constraints, and there was no editorial control of any sort, and I, I was thinking. I had some experience of working for advertising agencies, and it was art by committee. Um, and the people who were asking for changes were generally the people who were paying the money. They weren't creative types themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And what little I knew of a film and animation was that you were a small cog in a big machine. Yeah. And working on the comics, it was just, it was just me. Yeah. Um, and I, I liked that level of control. What was the reaction of the family when you wanted to 
train as an artist? Neither of my parents were artists themselves, and, um, and both of them were really, really supportive. Um, and they didn't, as a lot of parents do, they didn't kind of press me to try and get your degree with a view to, well, you could at least be an art teacher, because that's a steady right. job. It right. was just... Right. Do you know, they didn't even really vocalise much about the fact that, you know, like, do what you want to do. It was just simply, it was a kind of unspoken thing that, yeah, yeah they would, you know, like, I would go to art school. Are you and, sure they you know, weren't speechless by your decision making? <laughs> <laughs> no. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe they were. Comic art, those two words adjacent to one another, you don't really see that tons, you know. And I asked, again, Frank Miller recently, what do you want to be called an artist? He said, I'm a cartoonist. Mm -hmm. That word, how do you feel about that word, cartoonist? It feels like the Sunday funny papers. Yeah. The thing is, the word cartoonist means different things in, in different, with different groups of people. I think for people who don't read comic books, a cartoonist is somebody who either does the Sunday funnies or they do the political cartoons. Right, like a parody of something. It's yeah. a satire, it's a send-up. And, it's you know, the, the people who are the are best at doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Are, are magnificent. You know, like I mean if you Certainly. if you're doing if you're doing a, an effective political cartoon, then what you're doing is you're creating a composition that has a narrative and usually a punchline or a point of some sort. In a short dose. I, in one single image. And there's a and you have to make it absolutely accessible and you're usually using some sort of symbolism or whatever. I mean the the all the rules of building that composition are the same as the, if you were if you were a 15th century painter. Exactly. You know, it's it's the same thing. Exactly. It's, it's applied differently. Do you think cartoonist is a is a, maybe sensible, but do you feel it's uh, complete? No, it's not complete. Um, but then you know, maybe comic artist isn't complete either because right. the word comic itself, you know has links to comedy. Well, that's the thing. When to I, having comic value. When I mention we have comic artists in our series, they think, oh, stand-up comics? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a funky yeah. bit of, of, it's a slippery slope. Like a, like a lot of kids, I had liked comics when I was in primary school, drifted away when I was a teenager, and, um, and it was only when I started drawing for this underground comic. Uh, there was a bunch of guys that were drawing for the comic, and they just... They were good at drawing cartoons, and they, they were just kind of... They were basically taking jokes they'd heard in the pub and making it into a one-page story. And there was other guys who actually were really into comics yeah. and were hoping this was a kind of springboard or training ground or whatever. And those guys showed me, in the space of a couple of months, they showed me uh, Akira, they showed me a bunch of stuff by Frank Miller, Jeff Darrow, Alan Moore. These, All these I, wannabes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I basically got a kind of... A, condensed uh, reintroduction to what was happening in comics at the time. Well, another artist that I think of with you is R. Crumb. I know that's yeah. crazy. Oh, I know, absolutely. Be when you mention underground comics, and mm -hmm. maybe one day we'll get together and talk about underground comics, because I think it's still an undiscovered treasure chest mm -hmm. of inspiration. When I saw your work, I thought of Salvador Dali. I hope you don't find an insult in that. No, no, no. This is absolutely unrehearsed, but the... <laughs> Where that was, means we rehearsed it extensively. You realise that, right? Christ of St John of the Cross is hanging in a, the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and Museum in Glasgow. Um, and I went there often as a child, and I went there very often as an art student. And uh, one, of the, one of the big tourist attractions, it's, it's got one of the biggest civic collections in Europe, uh, the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery. And... Um, but this is the big tourist attraction, the Dali that we've got there. And, um, and I loved it as a child. You know, I always tell my students every film is a documentary. To a painter, every oh, yeah. painting is a documentary. Yeah. You got me thinking about David Lynch a lot. Not, just, not in terms of the work, but in terms of the life story. Lynch went to film school and was struggling. In his third year, he was making a racer head. He had a wife and a child, and his, he was broke. And his father and his brother staged what they called an intervention. And they said, David, you need to get a job. You need to stop making this movie right now um, and get a job. So he got a job delivering papers. He delivered the Wall Street Journal. 
he stopped making Eraserhead for three years. There's a scene in Eraserhead where Jack Nance opens a door and goes through the door. Those two cuts were filmed three years apart from one another. That's that process. And also, when you think of Eraserhead, you think of the story, that baby, whatever that thing is, it's, it's his life. It's what he was going through. You know, mm -hmm. then I went back to, into All Star Superman a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, can I look that way? Your work, or do I need a new hobby? Am I overthinking no, this stuff? No, it's, I mean, I'm all over my work. You know, I mean, like, I can see, I can see where I was at when I go through the works that I created in the past. Um, the, the thing about Lynch, which thought made me think about you. Someone asked David Lynch once, "Why did you become a filmmaker?" And Lynch was at the Philadelphia Academy of Art studying. And he said, I became a filmmaker because I wanted to see my paintings move. That was the, one of the most beautiful left brain, right brain responses, you know? And, and I see it in your work. I can see where, that's why I wanted to bring you in and talk about art. I see the art. In and beyond what it is, I can see those kind of vibrations. The Lynch, Reference is interesting because um, when I was in first year in Glasgow School of Art, um, like 100 yards down the road, next block down the street is the GFT, that's the Glasgow Film Theatre. It's this yeah. beautiful Art Deco art house film theatre. Yeah. And on this was back in 1985, 86. And back then, I think it was only it was probably only like three pounds or something to get into the, the to see a, a movie back then but the Glasgow Film Theatre eh, they did a, on a Monday they did a, a, a double bill in the afternoon and eh, if you were a student you get in for 50 pence shouldn't you have I, been in class I should have been in class absolutely good man but <laughs> it, every Monday afternoon for 50 pence you know seen, and you could smoke in the in the wow the cinema I don't well. think I would have left so, yeah, I would have so, just hung out in there so we would have a pack of jetain or goldwire or something we'd sit <laughs> watching it's like and a the, Roman Polanski film the, the first um, the first double bill that I went to see in the JFT was um, Night of the Hunter and Eraserhead Oh my god. And it was just for 50 pence. <laughs> and, uh, and funnily enough, um, Eraserhead uh, had a, aesthetically and thematically had a, made a real impression on me. And Night of the Hunter 2, and there's actually scenes in We Three that are kind of are basically referencing Night of We're the gonna Hunter. We're going to get to one little pit stop in Night of the Hunter. I do a series all over the US where I ask artists to pick their favorite films. Mm -hmm. The most often requested film on the dramatic side is Night of the Hunter. Yeah. It, it is the turn on, turn on. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see this film. I mean, yeah. to study film, we need to look at works that exemplify the charisma of the form itself, uh, the boundaries of the form. Comic books are not 3D. There are two dimensions. I always tell my students, film is flat. There's nothing in back of the screen. How do you take that charisma and tell a story? You said something I thought that was interesting. You said you're more along the lines of an actor. Tell me, how is a comic artist, in terms of the drawing, the, the language of drawing, how is that close to being an actor? Well, it's kind of, it's a bit like being, it's a bit like being all the actors and the director and the cinematographer at the same time. Wow. <laughs> Though the writer often makes suggestions for the cinematography, you know, right. um, if you're relating it to film. But I think the, when you simply look at what comics and film are, comics are like, it's, a, it's an extended narrative that has no sound and no movement and the reader sets their own pace. Mm. And movies has sound and movement, and it's actually the director yeah. who's setting the pace. So it's, it's obvious to everyone what the, the similarities are, but in, in, in terms of actually making comics and movies, and I've only got a very small amount of experience of, uh, in animation, but as far as I can tell, the, the differences between the two are possibly greater than the, the similarities. Uh, well, great drawn work like Akira, like 
these panels, they require second viewings, like Guernica, like great films. You know, I'm not saying, I'm not putting, comparing you to Picasso, Picasso to you, I'm just saying in terms of comics as art, if I walked into a gallery, if I walked into the modern and saw All-Star Superman, we three, I wouldn't miss a beat. It would feel is right to me. Two nights ago, I was at an opening of an exhibition in Clyde Bank in Glasgow, uh, Clyde Bank Gallery and Museum, and uh, it's called Comic Invention. And it's about the fact that um, Glasgow was the home to the world's first comic in 1845. Wow. It has local comic book artists from Clyde Bank. It's got some of my work. But it also has um, a Picasso. It's actually got two... Um, etchings that Picasso made uh, and it was during the, the reign of Franco and Picasso made um, a series of nine postcards or he actually made two series of nine postcards as etchings and it was nine panels oh, that told wow. a story wow. and what they, what they did once they printed them they cut them up and distributed them around all the bars and cafes and it encouraged people to say, oh wait a minute, you've got a different one, and they would eventually work it out and put it together and get the, the full comic strip. Another filmmaker that you remind me of and reminds me of you is Kurosawa in a different sense. I've heard you really talk, speak in interesting ways about composition. And you, know, you talk about your responsibility, maybe your goal to move people's eye across the page. Composition, I think, is one of the hardest things. It may not be teachable, but Kurosawa, and I want to get your response to this Kurosawa quote, he boiled it down beautifully. He said, composition is status. That's, that was his full definition. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was the most extraordinary definition. Could you even take a stab at defining how to compose or what composition is? I think, I think, um, I think it's, it's teachable insofar as there are certain rules or conventions of composition that generally work, that most artists working in most fields who are good at what they do will find ways of using composition to reinforce the theme or the point of what it is they're composing. Um, but I also think that composition is a very personal thing and I think it is, it's pretty intuitive. Um, and again, going back to the example of the political cartoonist, you know, like, you start off with an idea, with a point, with something that you want to say, and here are the, here are the two characters, you know? Um, you know, here's, you know, here's the king and here's the pauper. Here's the castle and here's right. the, you know, the, so it's the shack. And you need, to, you need to arrange these elements in such a way that it tells a story, that, or the, it makes the point that you're trying to make. And with Kurosawa, like, you can see when you watch his films that people don't turn away from someone else unless there's actually a point for them turning. Every, wherever they're placed on the screen or however they move or however they react to each other or what's happening with the weather in the background, <laughs> absolutely everything yeah. is actually every element that's on the screen is going towards saying these two are being drawn towards each other, these two are about to start fighting, he's about to leave. You, it's like it, everything is happening organically and everything is linked to everything else. And when you're drawing a comic book, like, like what I was saying about that very simple panel that nobody ever talks about, everything there is done for a reason. It looks that way because it could have been done lots of different ways, but that's the way it kind of, that's the way I wanted it to be told. It, it's just... It's, an, it's a beautiful, I love what you just said, especially because we, when we think composition, we don't think of character. You know, there's the old cinematography joke. Um, the cinematographer turns to the director and he says, what's that in front of my scenery? Director says, those are my actors. You know, so we don't think in terms of physical bodies. When, to study... Just to buttonhook this to Kurosawa, watch Rashomon, watch Seven Samurai. Extraordinary set pieces, but the way he puts bodies, where a character is looking is information. There's so much information, but I love, as you say, it's through the character. Can you tell us a little bit about your first 
magnetism to cinema or cinematic images. When did you first start drawing and playing with movie imagery? Um, I think I think like most people, I think movie imagery affected me at a, a subconscious level, like from as early as I started watching movies. Um, I grew up in the 80s when we had what were called the video nasties. The, the VHS video had been invented and, uh, and you could, if you had a, if one of your friends had a sympathetic big brother, you could, you could get all sorts of films that really weren't suitable for you. But yeah, I mean, I remember seeing zombie flesh eaters and just being blown away by it, you know, and uh, in the last house on the left and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Texas and, Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I remember seeing one that had a really lurid cover. I've never actually seen it. It was SS Experiment Camp. <laughs> And it's <laughs> never seen that. <laughs> it's a really, like really SS, like this, like yeah. like Nazi and yeah. kind of. Well, those exploitation genre mixes, you know, uh, Death Race Two Thousand. Uh, Roger Corman. We just had Roger on the show. He's incredible. Going strong at ninety-five. So, what were your images looking like? Were you drawing? Uh, Superman from like Christopher Reeve were you, because we just actually had Alex Ross and he talked a lot about seeing Spider-Man on the electric company and then drawing it yeah what were you why were you tracing these images out of mad and out of starburst what were you were you experimenting were you just kind of I think playing? I think copying the work of artists who are better than you is just something that most kids do you know and you tend to copy the stuff that you like best yeah. or you copy the stuff that's the funniest like visually the funniest or visually the most like grotesque or whatever, you know? Um, when I tell you the following, what do you think? That there are people out there in the world copying you, not copying, ripping you off. They're seeing your work and trying it out for themselves. Do you believe that? Yeah, I, mean, I meet people at that at conventions all the time. What do you think about that? It, it, on the one hand, it's really flattering. On the other hand, it's absolutely, well, why shouldn't they? I, I copied lots of other people, you know? The people I copied, like, were influenced by artists, especially, you know, even, even people who are, like, astoundingly good, like, like Mobius and Katsuhiro Otomo. I mean, like, there was a time when they were, like, 10, 14, 20, when they were working with or looking at the work of artists who were miles ahead of where they were at that age, yeah. you know? I mean, it's, it's just—it's it's kind just of like watching a soccer match and then going out and pretend you're Georgie Best or yeah, whomever. It's exactly yeah. the same thing. It's another thing about me. There are a few films I've watched loads and loads of times, and there's loads of films I've watched and loved, but I've only ever seen them once. Hitchcock's Rear Window, which I saw when I was a student, and uh, and I've still only seen once. You just want to stay away and keep that memory, or you just haven't got around to it, or haven't had the both, occasion to. Both, yeah. Both. Some, sometimes, it, I mean, because there there have been films that I've watched and thought they were really good, and then gone back and watched them again. But not as good as I remember. <laughs> Rear Window, 1954. That's not when uh, Frank saw it. Um, 1954. Jimmy Stewart. Uh, it's amazing about that set. The set is is legion. It's extraordinary. It's one of the great movie sets. Very functional. Uh, there were seven apartments that were working. I think there were 30 designed apartments. The set was made for 90,000 American. Adjusted for impl inflation now would be just under a million dollars on the set alone. Um, it had never been a, a set had never been attempted on the scale, and he made it filmable. This is a piece of mise-en-scene that has inspired so many incredible artists. When you mentioned it to me, I, I got goosebumps because it made 100% sense. It's funny, it's not one of his films that turns me on particularly, but it falls definitely in this milieu of his, what we call the one set wonder, you know, like Rope, uh, Dial M for Murder, Self-Contained. I love the Doll's House idea. Uh, the 50s for Hitch were pretty amazing. Uh, Strangers on a Train, 1951. Uh, a film called Vertigo, 1958. Uh, a film called North by Northwest, 1959. That's not a bad run. Um, what is it about the, the, the cross-section graphically? Again, to think back to We Three, the, sl sl the seeing the boxes in the boxes. When you watch, here's my question. I have a better question. Do you get distracted when you watch a movie? Do your graphic sensibilities distract you from the movie or plug you into it in a unique way? When you see the mise-en-scene of a, of a rear window, mm -hmm. does that open a new door or does that distract you from the character? What is it for you? 
Um, I think generally it draws me in. Um, I remember, the, I remember generally with with um, with Rear Window. It was the fact that when you see this doll's house across the the courtyard at the back, and you see bits of bits of stories, almost like comic panels, you see bits of stories happening through the windows. There's you 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 end up not wanting to be away from the window. I found I found that <laughs> that's I love that. That's great. On the, the occasions, you know, like where the, the action went back into Jimmy Stewart's apartment. It's less charismatic. With Grace Kelly, you know, like, yeah, there, there was great performances from those two, but I still, I wanted to get back to looking out the window. <laughs> it was the voyeur yes. thing, yes, you know? Yes. Um, yes. And I remember with Night of the Hunter, when they, when the, the, the children, you know, in the, in, the, in the cellar. Incredible. And you've got this whole black screen and the door opens up at the top right, and some light goes down the stairs, you know? And it's just the idea that the whole room's there, you just can't see it all yet, you know? Um, to think Night, Night of the Hunter 1955, my last question of the night, and I'm gonna ask you now, but think about it, were you born at the wrong time? 1954 Rear Window, 1955 Night of the Hunter. This is Shelley Winters in one of her many water deaths in movie history, but look at it. Look at, I'm gonna use a word that is so tacky and hacky, but the surrealism of it is extraordinary. Can you imagine seeing this image in a movie, a mainstream movie that no one expected anything of? Charles Lawton, 1955. It was the only film he ever directed. He was an English actor. He was so crushed by the reviews of this movie that he never directed again. His wife said this movie, the reception of it, destroyed him mm -hmm. in a way. But it is a movie that any film lover worth their salt, even if you don't like it, you love it. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You just keep the, the craft and the, the levels, the layers, the textures, the light, the generations. This is a, a movie lover's dream. And what's, what's beautiful about this is that when the child comes in with a candle, the candle illuminates the screen. And by the time she puts the candle out, the preacher in the back, the threat in the background has, has disappeared. That ca the candle in her hand is causing the illumination of Robert Mitchum, who's about to turn 100 years old, believe it or not. Um, I have too much time on my hands, apparently. So, as Frank says, when the window, when the, sh the mother, out of fear, says blow out the candle, they blow it out, and the image of him goes away, because it's a scrim. It's mm -hmm. like a theater yeah. scrim. This movie, I hate the expression, ahead of its time, mm -hmm. I'm incredible. You're now into motion content creation, animation. A film of yours is debuting at Edinburgh, as we mentioned, mm -hmm. this short film called Nothing to Declare. Talk about why you wanted to explore the world of moving content, motion content, animation content. Okay. Um, I had written a bunch of short stories that I intended to do as comics primarily. Um, I have a bunch of friends who are animators and one of them said to me, would you give us one of your short stories for an animation and you could help us storyboard it, you could help us direct it, you could design the characters. Um, I absolutely didn't have the time. I, I was really far behind with my deadlines uh, on Jupiter's Legacy. I've heard that about you. Mm, yeah, it happens sometimes. <laughs> and. Um, so they said, well, just give us the script and, you know. So I, I gave them the script and myself and the, the director, um, we, we, we sat and kind of rewrote it a few times. And we were funded 15,000 pounds and it's CGI animation and apparently the, the, the kind of average is 10,000 pounds per minute for CGI and we've got a six and a half minute film. So 15,000 really, we, we really like worked on a, on a <laughs> shoestring budget. Amazing. But I did the character designs. Um, but, and I did a little bit of the storyboarding, but I didn't have time to get involved with the, the directing. And um, it's interesting because with the directing, I think there's probably not much in the directing of that I would have done differently, but there's, it is one of these things. It's like, you, you know, you, 
you you give a you give a comic script to ten different artists, you'll get ten different directorial visions, you know, yeah. you get ten yeah. different sequences, you know. Yeah. Um but uh, I mean I actually love what they've done with it. I love the look of it. Um uh, I love the, the way it's directed. It was John Cummings from uh, Mogwai that did the, the music for music it. Music is amazing. Are you nervous about showing your work now in a different way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm nervous about, um, about moving into to animation because all my experiences in comics, you know? Um, I'm nervous about doing the writing because most of my experience is in doing the drawing and somebody else doing the writing. Um, I'm, I'm nervous about working my own types of stories because they're not the types of stories that I've been doing with other writers. You know, and I honestly don't think, a lot of them, I don't think they have the, the same kind of audience, you know. I mean, most of, the, most of the stories I've written for myself to draw don't have any legs in terms of they're not they're not going to become a TV show, they're not going to become a, a movie, they're not going to become a, a toy, you know, like a lot of them are simply either short twist in the tale stories or there's just unusual little vignettes. They're, and it's all shorts that I've written, you know. I don't seem to have that big long plot, you know. You're so nervous, why do it? Why are you entering this new turf? Um, I don't know, I suppose I, when I started doing comics I was writing and drawing um, and they were humorous stories or they were intended to be humorous stories um, and for probably four or five years now I've been writing short stories um, and some of them it's, uh, I've been writing just like scenes and bits and pieces of things you know that might I might build on later but um, it's, there was a period in between the first couple of years and the last few years where I didn't actually have the desire to be to be creating my own content. I had enough. I had enough to be thinking about. It was good enough for me to be working with writers that I wanted to work with and to be investing all my time in ex learning my craft and exploring how best to tell stories. What's changed? I just naturally started writing again. It wasn't a forced thing. It, one of the things that might have m maybe been a catalyst was the um, a couple of the guys from the BBC, the the comedy story that I used to write for myself for the underground comic. They asked if I was interested in in a, writing that as a pilot for a potential TV show, and. I started writing, but it was more about a humorous setup and how best to do the the dialogue for it, and um, and I did a I did a, a pilot script, and one of the guys from the BBC did a pilot script, and then we got together and we did a pilot script that we co-wrote, and um, and then a. And then they both lost their jobs. <laughs> not related to not related to working <laughs> no, with me. This wasn't due to their association. No. And, um, <laughs> and then I rewrote when I went back to that script, um, what I found was I took out most of what they had done. Right. And this isn't about me thinking I was better at writing than them, it was actually just to do with personal taste. It was my own vision of those characters. I took out most of what they had done and in rewriting it, I was started kind of thumbnailing it a bit as though I was, it was maybe going to go back to being a comic. And I found that when I was doing that, it became more slapstick, it became more physical. As we close out here, I'm thinking, wait a second, you just became a writer, you know, which is an extraordinary conversation because I'm sitting here thinking of Brian Bendis, I'm thinking of Neil Gaiman, I'm thinking of Mark Miller, I'm thinking of the great comic writers. And then I'm thinking of the bad comic movies. And I'm thinking, if someone said, hey, Frank, we, we've noticed you're writing short form content, but we really like it. We're doing Deadpool 20. Would you write it? Would you, would you want to get into that? Or is it more of a Neil Gaiman creating unique kind of? I think I'd aim to be Neil Gaiman first, and if I failed miserably, which I think I would, <laughs> 
I, I would then... You go to Hollywood. <laughs> I'd then change my name to Woody Allen and write a really shitty Deadpool movie. <laughs> I'm going to tell your sons he's going to change his name once one more time <laughs> before he leaves. Hey, man, I, I, this has been bliss for me. I've never covered so many different points of reference. So here's my final question. Do you consider yourself an artist? Um... Yes, I consider myself an artist. Um, primarily, I consider myself a comic book artist. Um, and you said at the start that, you know, in the same way that, you know, like a lot of the singers and songwriters that you've spoke to think of themselves as being musical artists or performing artists, you know. Um, so I think when you started, you said something about we, we would touch on comics as art, you know, and um, I always kind of think it's the wrong question, you know, um, because very often when people see our comics art, you know, like, on the one hand they're thinking of art as like, you know, like, paintings from the Renaissance onwards, right. or they're thinking of paintings from the, the 20th century, or they're thinking of contemporary uh, conceptual art, you know, like, but it's not a question you would ask, like, of, of literature, of film, of theatre. You know, like, yeah, but is it art? You know, that's not the point. You know, like, you don't ask, you know, like, if you've got a favourite musical artist, you know, like, is it art? You know, like... I, don't th I think it's an uncommon question, albeit, but I, I guess I'm drawn to it. It's, it's an art form, and like, like television or like film, you can simply tell a story. You can, you can invest in it, and you can make something that's absolutely unique and special and touches people. Um, you can, you, you can, you can elevate it to the point of an art form, or you can simply treat it as as a medium of communication or I think, entertainment. I think that's interesting. Just in closing, uh, Neil Labute, the playwright, once told me that he defines art as the things he doesn't know how to do. And I think he was being realistic, but I also think for me, when I see your work, it, it goes beyond the analytical. It goes into another part and you know, that is art. So maybe it's a maybe it's a, a passe idea, a passe question, but I do think it's important. Somebody's gotta call themselves an artist, whether it's themselves or someone else. Mm -hmm. So the question itself is enough for me. And my answer on behalf of you is you are. A nice round of applause for Frank Whiteley for being here with us today. Thanks very much. Thank you guys. mental note for um, upcoming show I, I want to do a theme on video nasties here's some homework for you look into video nasties it's a really cool moment in time primarily in the UK we will do a show on video nasties that would be really cool I'm glad Frank brought that up the challenge with the firm grasp of the obvious potential of comics being art is their ubiquity. I think when when work becomes ubiquitous, I think people are hard pressed to recall that music is art, you know, because I think sometimes people eliminate that option when they don't like something. If you don't like a Justin Bieber song, it's still art. <laughs> there's there's art and there's taste <laughs> so i think comics do suffer from this ubiquity trap now what's the antidote exclusivity because when when art becomes exclusive i.e in museums i.e in galleries then it's looked at as aristocracy aristocratic and it's taken away from people so it, it is a real challenge the 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 uh, eel-like elusiveness of this word, because it does root itself culturally in what's available, how much it costs. Comic books are not expensive, and I think again, people, everything factors in. All of this subterfuge factors in. But again, this talk was not simply about what is our comic books art. That was the the cheese on the end of the. Um, fishing pole. Do people put cheese? I guess Tom and Jerry did uh, to trap one another. 
it was the bait. The switch was, is he an artist? Are comic book legends artists? Frank quietly, unanimously, uh, beyond debate, beyond point of view, is an artist and is one of my favorite. And, you know, this Justin, a super cool guy. And uh, I want to sit and talk with him more and learn more about Haggis and the wonders of Scotland. We want to thank Frank Whiteley for being here with us today on Murmur. The website, murmurradio.com. The social handles, at MSF Murmur. That goes for Facebook. That goes for Instagram. That goes for Twitter. You can hear us every week on whup.org. You can download us evergreen. Don't just subscribe to iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Don't just subscribe. Download. Remember, it's like having a magazine subscription but never reading the magazine. Download us. See you soon.